Children of Midgard, hearken to the tale of Thor Odinson, who strode bravely to battle. No father heard his cry. No friend gave him aid. Alone against his bane, the Thunderer strove with Loki's terrible son, Jormungand. He slew that ancient evil, Serpent of the World. So the Son of Gods embraced his doom. Would you know more? I am Miles Stokes. And I am Elizabeth Alley. And this is The Lightning and the Storm. Behold, the final episode of our 13-part love letter to Walter Simonson's epic 1980s run of The Mighty Thor. So months later, we are here. Oh my gosh, I kind of thought this day would never come. Oh man, it is Ragnarok itself, except like, you know, happier, because we're not going to get killed by wolves and serpents and stuff. But still very sad, because we're not going to be doing this every week anymore. I know, but think think of the grand accomplishment that we have put forth into Midgard Realm of Mortals. I mean, you know, assuming that the people who are looking at the grand accomplishment like really like Thor, otherwise it's kind of meaningless. But for those people, I hope they liked it. I know, we are like the dwarves. Forging a mighty podcast out of Uru Metal? Crackath the Room! And then there was an MP3. Uh, so, yeah, we are indeed going to be covering the end of Walter Simonson and now Sal Buscema's run of Thor. But before we get started, we had a couple things we wanted to mention. First off, Dude, that Thor Ragnarok trailer? Okay, so we record uh, early, and this, so this trailer just came out like a couple days ago for us. Yeah, it was amazing. Like, when it came out, I mean, I loved the teaser trailer, so I had high hopes for this, and it just blew my mind. It looks, first of all, like a Thor-Hulk full-on crossover, which is exciting. Yeah, it's basically a Thor and Hulk in space buddy movie, which is not what I would have expected. I mean, you know, obviously the, the teaser trailer showed us that, but I think it's going to work. Obviously, this is a very different Thor. I mean, we've talked about that uh, here and there before on the show, but I like the cinematic Thor, and this seems like it's going to be a great showcase for him and also a great showcase for Taika Waititi's directing style and also a great showcase for apparently the 80s in space. Oh, my gosh. I love their sort of gung-ho space opera, like the music. It reminded me of like the best parts of Flash Gordon and just the neon and everything. So much fun. I'm really pleased. And also, I don't really know what role Valkyrie is going to play in this, which is to say the character named Valkyrie, not like the Valkyries in general, although they're in it too. But I love the actress they got to portray her, and I love her design. I know. I loved her on Veronica Mars. So when I saw her, I'm like, oh, Veronica Mars, alum making good. Oh, man. But we got to talk about Hela. Oh my god. First of all, I'm kind of pleased and a bit disappointed, actually, that she's rocking the cold shoulder style that is so popular this season. I would <laughs> think that Hela would be kind of above that, and yet she pulls it off so beautifully. Well, and they gave her this sweet helmet thing with all the little spikes, and you even see them growing out of her head at one point, which is so intimidating. Oh yeah, she looks completely badass here, so. Oh, ever since that great and terrible scene from, uh, was it was at the Fellowship of the Ring, where she was talking about what she'd do if she'd get the ring? Oh, Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, it was totally there for her. So <laughs> I'm really excited. Um, Oh, yeah, the executioner, he's in it. Yeah, I was really excited to see him. Of course, I'm wondering, where is the enchantress? Which makes me wonder, he seems to be aligned with Hela. So if his devotion to the enchantress is kind of being transferred to Hela? 
I guess. I mean, I don't know. I, I can understand removing characters because there are so many. I mean, we never got Balder in the first two movies. Sure, sure. And the Enchantress, she hasn't been anywhere in the Marvel Universe, so they'd have to, like, introduce a whole new character. Although they did have Lorelai on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., apparently. I haven't seen it, but really? she was there with Sif. I guess Sif was hunting her down on Earth. <laughs> that is funny. I'll have to go on Hulu or Netflix or whatever just to find that. But, of course, that's not the only Simonsonian Thor character. Surter, hello! Right in the very last part of the trailer? This is going to be such a full movie. Is it going to be six hours long or something? I, I wouldn't object. But, I mean, I hope if Surter's there, I hope that means that Odin is going to have a significant role in this. Yeah, I know. If they could do that big standoff with the Eternal Flame and stuff. Who knows? At this point, we know so little about what's going to happen, but... uh. I'm excited. Sounds like you're also excited. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, the Thor, cinematic Thor has always been really funny, but I feel like Marvel's taken a really good lesson from Guardians of the Galaxy, and they're just not afraid to be out and out goofy anymore, and I love that. Yeah, but also epic and also, like, emotional. I, sure. If they can capture that, because, I mean, we know we have the Executioner's last stand from that first trailer. They had better get that right. Yeah. Um, yep. Uh, but the Thor movie is not the only thing we're excited about, because we also have a cool announcement. We are going to be throwing an awesome karaoke rap party here in Portland, August 4th at the Ambassador. Uh, we are going to get there at about 7.30. Karaoke starts at 8.30. This will give us time to actually talk to each other before the bombast begins. But uh, if you live in Portland, we certainly hope you can come join us and sing and probably eat some cake. Yes. And uh, to clarify, this is the Ambassador Karaoke Bar in Midgard, not the one in Vanaheim. A lot of people make that mistake, and then it's like a really long commute to get where you're going, and by that time the party's almost over, so be careful. Agnar's going to be texting us like, I'm here, where are you guys? <laughs> I've been bored, I've been learning to speak bird like I said I was gonna, but... You forgot me, just like Marvel Comics! <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yes, uh, Thor trailer looks pretty cool for the movie, and you should come to our rap party if you are in Portland uh, and, and would like to. We would love to meet as many listeners as possible or see you if we already know you. And now I think we should talk about some Thor comics for this final time. So we start with Thor 379. There were giants in those days or a discourse between heroes and villains. I do enjoy Simonson's predilection for parenthetical subtitles. Yeah, yep. It's just an extra layer of fun. So we start in a way that continues pretty directly from what we covered in the last episode. These last two episodes, the content kind of goes together. Not as much as, say, Cert War Part 1 and Cert War Part 2, but a lot of what we see here follows directly from there, which is why we find ourselves in Norway with Grundroth and his band of frost giants. And we see Grundroth commanding the other frost giants to hack off a giant chunk of glacier under them, which they then carve into a boat of ice as it floats down the ocean. So I don't know what it is about this scene, like chopping off a big chunk of ice, standing on it, and then carving a boat under you as it floats, that has just always seemed really, I don't know, refreshing to me. I mean, right now it's probably because we're in the middle of uh, Portland's very brief summer period, and so that just sounds really nice. Although I don't think I want to hang out with frost giants. I feel like they'd be terrible company, and I would probably get mauled or murdered in some capacity. Yeah, or they would just start, uh, you know, talking bad about you, like, right to your face, practically. In their fake whisper voice? Yes. Oh, that Miles with that hair. What does he think? It's still the 60s or something? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's cool, and it makes sense because, of course, they have the mastery of ice. They love ice. Uh, it's nice to see them utilize it. And as for why they're here, well, that calls back to the end of the last issue we covered. Uh, they are really pissed off at Thor, and they want vengeance. So they are seeking a great beast, one of Thor's great enemies, to finally take him down. And that great beast is in Norway. 
So they sent a particularly stupid giant to the seafloor with a rope to ask the object of their mission to come up. Alas, poor Snotri, we did not know you well. But the line does indeed go taut. This creature under the sea has taken the bait, and all the giants pull really, really hard. And up comes... Fin Fang Foom? Like... That Marvel giant monster from the 60s? That Chinese dragon who is actually a space dragon? Who wears tiny shorts for some reason? (laughs) So the giants are confused. They were looking for a giant green uh, dragon, and instead they find this giant orange dragon. Although interestingly enough, Fin Fang Foom is normally portrayed as green, so why is this one different? Well, we'll kind of sort of get to that. (laughs) Just a random note, in a 2008 comic, Fing Fang Foom converted to Buddhism, reformed, and became head chef in a Chinese restaurant in the Fantastic Four's headquarters, because of course. I love Marvel Comics so much. <laughs> and Fing Fang Foom says... A foul-tasting snowball awakens me out of a sound slumber. Some ragged fishermen try to catch me with a clothesline that wouldn't hook a minnow. They insult my appearance, and then fail to recognize me. Rarely have I encountered such ill-mannered food so eager to be eaten. So the giants explain that their enemy Thor, who could easily destroy Fing Fang Foom, is now weakened. So they want a great monster to kill him. And Fing Fang Foom is intrigued and flies off. Yeah, Fing Fang Foom may not be the monster they had in mind, but he will not take this insult to his prowess lightly. He's off to kill him a Thor. Meanwhile, in Midgard, Thor drops Iceman off at X-Factor headquarters and says he now has little time now for the fates of mortals. And in fact, at this point, Iceman is back in the X-Factor comic because this was in a glorious time where a character could generally only be in one place at a time instead of Wolverine being in like 12 books at once. <laughs> and this shot of Thor flying through the city here reminds me of 4341 when Thor has returned to Midgard and back in New York City, which is a wonderful scene. And in fact, the cover of this reminded me of that as well with Thor uh, fighting Fafnir instead of Fing Fang Foom. I can totally see that. And while there aren't a lot of direct callbacks in this arc, there certainly are a lot of uh, thematic callbacks, a lot of the feel of past bits of Thor from Simonson's run, and certainly from Thor in general before Simonson started, can be found. And I think you're absolutely right. This does feel like that Thor coming to Midgard, everything feeling kind of hopeful. I mean, Thor's in a crappy space, but at least he just had a win for a change. And then there's a dragon. Different dragon, but still. (laughs) Later, Thor sits on a bench in his sweet armor, pondering how to remove Hela's curse when Fing Fang Foom attacks from behind. Now, little one, turn and stare into the face of death, for I am Fing Fang Foom, and the son of Odin will learn to his eternal regret. Oh, I beg your pardon. I fear that I mistook you for someone else. The Red Cape, you know. So yes, because Thor is in different armor, he's suddenly unrecognizable, which is kind of hilarious. I don't know, is Fin Fang Foom, like, racist? Like, do all humans look the same to him? I don't feel good about that. And him referring to Thor as Little One, is this like an ancient creature of myth thing, like Tiwaz? Oh yeah, maybe, maybe if you're old enough, everyone just becomes Little One, or big enough. I mean, Tiwaz was a big dude too, not as big as Fin Fang Foom. That's true. But they banter. What I like here is that Thor does not identify himself as Thor. It's clear to him that Fin Fang Foom doesn't recognize him. And so he just talks about how, you know, as a superhero, it's really his job to stop any monsters that might be harming innocents. And they have this uh, 
it's just this wittiness. It reminds me of one of those uh, 1950s style movies where everybody's talking back and forth very quickly and there's lots of wordplay and they're sort of uh, mocking each other, but in kind of a respectful way. It's a lot of fun. Well, what I like is that unlike Fin Fang Foom, Thor doesn't take offense when he's not recognized. You know, he's very he just rolls with it. He thinks it's funny and he's going to use it to his advantage. Exactly. But Fin Fang Foom feels like this unknown, long-haired, caped character doesn't respect him enough. He feels like this person doesn't fear him enough. And so he threatens to kill all the civilians nearby to prove his power. And Thor, the Thor that Fin Fang Foom doesn't know is Thor, says he can't let that happen because, like Thor, he too is a superhero sworn to protect the innocent. So they make a deal. If Thor can lift Fin Fang Foom's foot... Fin Fang Foom will agree to fight him away from the city. If not, Fin will kill Thor and thousands of humans. If Thor refuses, Fin Fang Foom will destroy the city. So you know how I feel like you say a word enough, it stops sounding like a word? I feel like Fin Fang Foom does that basically the second time you say it. (laughs) I feel like you wrote these notes specifically to, like, mess me up. (laughs) I I, I didn't know you were going to read that part. I might have read that part. Sure, with your Loki-like strategy. (laughs) (laughs) My foolish stepsister. (laughs) Well, Thor doesn't have a lot of options here. I mean, he doesn't want to see a bunch of people get killed, so he says, okay, I'll give it a shot. And, you know, plus this dragon, it's a dragon, but Thor's really strong, and now he's in his invincible armor, so his injuries aren't really slowing him down. And he tries to lift Fin Fang Foom's foot, and strains, and strains, and his muscles shift, and his bones crack. And I do love that the colorist, I believe her name was Max Scheel, draws Thor's face as just bright red, as the blood just rushes to it. And Fin Fang Foom is impressed and takes Thor on his back and they fly off, exchanging poetic words about aphorisms and symbols. What is this, like Fin Fang Linklater or something? I love it. Like, we've talked a lot about how we want certain buddy cop shows with two characters that just work really well together. And I think that Thor, who Fin Fang Foom doesn't know is Thor, and Fin Fang Foom would be wonderful for that. And also, then people would say Fin Fang Foom a lot, and it would just start sounding really weird right away. (laughs) Everybody will get really good at tongue twisters, we'll have competitions, it'll be a thing. So Fin Fang Foom is impressed by all this uh, after they fly off, and he says that he'll grant this guy a boon before killing him. He'll tell this unknown little mortal his name. My true home is in the deeps of time, beyond the reach of clocks. I know much about illusions, little hero. Ever and anon, I wear them as I wander in the world. But now I have brought us into my time, and you are doomed. Never again shall you lift a limb nor draw breath. No breeze shall caress thy cheek. No dawn anoint thy brow with light. The time of illusion has passed. And the name of the illusion is Jormungand! And here, Fin Fang Foom's orange skin splits like a banana, and a gigantic, gigantic serpent emerges from his skin, which just kind of flops. It's like super creepy, but super effective. Oh, yeah, and this new dragon, this serpent, has these great eye ridges and fangs like an antlion's pinchers and batwing ears and a golden crest and an infinitely long serpentine body. Infinitely long. This 
it's immediately clear, and there's been so much foreshadowing building up to this. This is indeed Jormungand. This is the World Serpent, the son of Loki, the Midgard Serpent, the Midgar Sorm. That's a Boston Many Final Fantasy games. It's based on this guy. It's a gigantic serpent that literally encircles the Earth under the sea and is Thor's bane. At the end of days... The Midgard Serpent and Thor will fight each other, Thor will slay the serpent, but Thor, even after his victory, having been poisoned, will take nine steps and then die. Kind of like the five-point palm exploding heart technique from Kill Bill. Or any number of things in Fist of the North Star. But this is one of my favorite bits of Ragnarok. This is one of my favorite bits of mythology. I mean, if you're talking about the apocalypse of the gods, having these grand pairings and having nobody walk away from them works. And having Thor get those nine steps, it just adds such drama to it, adds such inevitability. And Ragnarok is all about inevitability. So here, near the end of Simonson's run of the mighty Thor, we have the monster that is supposed to slay, like finally slay, the mighty Thor. Yeah, this is a big deal to end on. And I think it's fantastic that Simonson, you know, picked this and is executing it so awesomely. Oh, man. And I also like the little bits leading up to this that make it make sense that this is Jormungand or Jormungandr, if you want to get more technical. Uh, So at first, you know, the giants fish him up. One of the most common Viking art motifs, at least that has survived to be looked at by art people, um, is a myth where Thor fishes up the Midgard serpent when he's fishing with his buddy. And then he's about to fight the serpent, but his buddy cuts Jormungand loose so that, you know, Jormungand doesn't devour them. Uh, And so the giants did that. The thing with Thor lifting Finfang Foom's foot and having a harder time than he thought, I think we mentioned this earlier, Utgard Loki, one of the legends about him and his various illusions is that he asked Thor to lift the foot of a cat, and that was really hard because the cat was really the Midgard serpent. It's just myth after myth after myth being referenced. Simonson is clearly just basting in Norse mythology. He's just steeped in it, and other strange food-like terms which get kind of gross if you think about it too much. But I love that about this run. It is fantastic. And we see images of helicopters, hummingbirds, everything, all frozen. Throughout the world, as the snake sheds his skin, all things are suddenly silent, and the world slips from the inexorable stream of time into timelessness, while the serpent dances alone, brilliant and immortal, in the glory of its youth. So we've talked about how the arcs toward the end of Simonson's run, basically the ones where Salbusema does the art, that's a, a clean dividing point, are much smaller in scope and scale than what we've seen before. They're fights, not wars, for instance. But they're epic in the mythic nature of that scope. It may be not a gigantic war with all of New York and all of Asgard involved, but it's almost like we're going back in time into these simpler but grandly meaningful individual myths about individual characters. And for me, I don't know if that's what I would have chosen to do were I Walter Simonson, but I think it does really work. It's kind of like MTV Unplugged, you know, like Thor's stripped down to his essence and in a way that really focuses the intensity of his character and of the storyline. It makes you see it in a whole new way. That is not a parallel I would have thought of, but it's actually <laughs> kind of perfect. It's probably because I'm older than you. <laughs> I, I, hey, I mean, my favorite Nirvana album is still Unplugged in New York, so I'm, I'm right there with you. <laughs> But the serpent says he doesn't know his foe's name, and Thor decides to answer him. I have many names, serpent, even as you. Vingthor the Hurler, Longbeard's son have I been called, Hroder's foeman too. In Tyr's ancestral home, 
wisest Hymir knew my name as Fjör. Unhappy Hrungnir's playmates some have called me. East of Elvagar in Giant Home, they whisper Hloridi's name. My father called me son. My mother called me darling. And beneath the vaults of heaven, I am Thor Odinson, the Thunderer, Jormungand's fear. For I am the wielder of Mjolnir, the Crusher, the enchanted mallet of thunder and lightning that your father hates. It too has another name. In the fury of the storm, it howls its rage and shrieks its name aloud. Do you hear it, serpent? It is thy bane I wield, Loki's child. The end of all illusion. The hammer sings the death of Jormungand. And that leads us straight into Thor 380, Mjolnir's song. And this is a very different issue for several reasons. Oh, and it is amazing. Well, we'll get to the amazing. So those reasons include, number one, guess who's back on art? Walter Simonson. That's right. This is the only issue that Walter Simonson pencils after he stopped drawing in the middle of the Balder and Trollhags arc. And what an issue to come back for. That's not the only thing, though. The panel layout? Well, it's very different than we're used to. Each page is a full panel. In fact, there's at least one double-page spread that is just one huge splash page. And... The way he draws these, you know, we've missed his art. Sal Buscema is very good with a lot of things, but Simonson's layouts are just so alive. They are so almost three-dimensional. The angles he chooses and the sense of scale and motion. I don't particularly like motion comics as they are now, but this reads like a living thing right playing out right before your eyes. And what I really love about it is you would expect the pace to be uniform with each page having just one panel, or sometimes two pages having just one panel, but it's not. Just the way Simonson draws everything, where he places captions and speech bubbles and sound effects, the pace just gets faster and slower and faster and slower, like a Zack Snyder movie, but you know, good, throughout the entire issue. It's it's masterful. Artistically speaking, I mean, Simonson's whole run is a masterpiece, but this specific issue, I think it may use comics as a visual medium better than any other issue I've read. Absolutely. And while, of course, we would encourage you to read every issue of this run while you listen to our podcast, if for some reason you're just listening and not reading, I strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you to find this issue either online or at your local comic shop because it's mind-blowing. Oh, it really, really is. So we're going to be talking about this a little differently because it's much it's a much more visual issue than we're used to. It's going to be a little strange, but if we can convey half of the grandeur, I'm going to consider that a success. <laughs> we can start with the cover. It is focused on Jormungand's face as he is battling Thor, and it looks like it's three-dimensional. It really does, yeah, with the, the head in the foreground and the body going all the way back into infinity. And Thor's in the foreground, you know, doing that thing where he spins his hammer to kind of hover, which is silly if you think about it, but I think is awesome anyway. And the difference in scale is very, very clear. I mean, Thor is like the size of one of Jormagon's larger fangs. <laughs> well, inside, an armor-clad Thor soars over Jormungand. We can't even see Jormungand's head, just loops of his body. And this panel does a great job of implying just how long Jormungand is. And that's something we're going to come back to again and again during this fight. There's not a lot in the way of backgrounds. And normally, 
that's a problem. It really takes you out of the comic. But with this, those coils of the serpent kind of are the background. And that just puts the focus right on the fight, right on the characters, because that's all it's about. Yes, there will be grand consequences. Yes, time has freaking frozen as these titans battle in the sky. But everything depends on which person walks away. Well, if either does, because you know the myth. Exactly. And another way it calls back to earlier in the series is the incredible narration in captions on many of the pages. Children of Midgard, hearken to the tale of Thor Odinson, who strode bravely to battle. No father heard his cry, no friend gave him aid. Alone against his bane, the thunderer strove with Loki's terrible son, Jormungand. He slew that ancient evil, serpent of the world. So the son of gods embraced his doom. Would you know more? I love how right here in the opening narration, we're getting a spoiler, basically. We know that Thor is kind of going to die. We know that Jormungand is kind of going to die. We know that this myth has been foretold. And just that sense of foreboding, that sense of inevitability, is what drives the heroism of Thor as he just strives and fights what drives the villainy of Jormungand as he tries to win this fight and escape with his life. It's basically individual willpower versus destiny. And we come to this double-page spread that I swear is beyond any conventional comic or any page that has come in this run before. We see Jormungand just so majestic and imposing, and Thor looks like a hummingbird next to him. Again, the loops of Jormungand's body take up so much of the page surrounding Thor. It almost reminds me of how every time you're in Asgard, there's this sky just full of stars and planets and nebulas and stuff. Like, there's really not much in the way of empty space, and that's the case here. This serpent encircles the freaking planet! He's as big as the globe! I don't know enough about geography or math to know how long that is, but, like, really long. That is so creepy. Like, I think my reaction when I see a poor, innocent, like, garter snake, can you imagine, like, be fishing someday and you'd be like, oh my god, the serpent is as big as the world. Like, there's not enough, like, poison in the world. Oh, man. Well, Jormungand's full of poison, so (laughs) at least there's that. But Jormungand reveals that he knows about Hela's curse on Thor, uh, now that he knows that Thor is Thor. And he's concluded that since Thor can't die, then Thor must also no longer be able to kill Jormungand. So the serpent's plan is to eat Thor so that Thor can live forever inside him, being, you know, gradually digested but never ever dying. I guess that's solid logic. (laughs) Solidly gross logic. Although I guess it does work out a lot in cartoons, you know, the whale eats you or whatever and there's just like people hanging out inside and... Old treasure chests. Does that mean that Thor would come out the other end and be like undead poop? (laughs) I mean, he'd have to go all the way around the world. There's around the world in 80 days, and I guess this would be around the world in a reptile's digestive tract? Oh my god, why did I even think of that? Ugh, I'm, I'm sorry. You're the one that brought it up. I'm, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but here we also see the return of Walter Simonson's wonderful, fantastic sound effects as Thor slams Jormungand's head into the ground with a Mayhap a taste of the hammer of Thor will curb your appetite. And Jormungand cries. <laughs> 
And we always kind of debated whether the sound effects were the artists or the letterers. And I talked to my husband, Scott Alley, who's an editor at Dark Horse, and it's his opinion that they are clearly Walter Simonson's. So they look like, you know, draftsmen, like he he drew them out. And I guess it does make sense because we never saw this sort of thing on uh, Sal Buscema's run anyway. Yeah, they are wonderful. Uh, and in fact, with another one, with a stash, Thor drives Jormagon's head into the earth, uprooting trees and sending boulders flying into the air. The sense of impact. I mean, these are people where everything they do just creates these immense consequences for the earth. And I'm really pleased that, you know, Thor and Jormungand did in fact get out of the city because otherwise it would be the end of Man of Steel and nobody wants that. (laughs) And we were talking about how there's kind of a lack of backgrounds. There's kind of minimal backgrounds in these panels, but I think it is really fantastic. Like one, logically it makes sense. Otherwise, Thor wouldn't be fighting with such abandon but also it's just like this perfect muted backdrop for this insane you know like epic battle yeah everything in this comic gets across these two combatants are what matter and nothing else does everything else the whole world is standing still to see how this conflict turns out so anything else would just be both a distraction and irrelevant And Jormagan continues to physically dominate the page with Thor small and to the side. And not only is the scale of Jormagan incredible throughout this issue, but again, there's just a sense of movement and action that is incredibly intense. And Jormungan hits Thor with his whole body. He just snake slams him with a scrack. And here the font changes from like a highly stylized uh, lettering to a scrawl, which is a great way to communicate the force of the blow. Yeah, that's solid impact at first. It then just turns into this shattering, shredding scrape. I love it. And Jermagon says, A hit, Thor! A palpable hit! And this balloon comes from off screen, again, like emphasizing the unbelievable size of Jermagon. They couldn't fit his body and his head in a whole page panel. It's like Nanny from the Muppet Babies. (laughs) I mean, you know, she also encircled the earth and was destined to poison (laughs) Thor so that he would take nine steps and die. I don't know if you saw that episode. uh, It it didn't get syndicated. Darn it. I hate when that happens. I think it's on YouTube. And from the force of this blow, Thor crashes into a mountain with a definitive crack-a-doom. The sound effect changing font and color over a multicolored explosion from the impact. One of the things I really like about a lot of these sound effects is that just within the sound effect itself, like it almost has its own mini narrative. Yeah, it it communicates things so fantastically. And the narrator continues to be super awesome. The earth trembled at Thor's touch. Drenched with blood and fire, the fearful sun hid its face. Locked in fate's embrace, they had no hope of victory, only glory and doom. Only glory and doom. Doom! Oh, man. (laughs) So Jormungand streaks and loops through the blazing sky toward the ruined mountain and toward Thor. And he calls Thor a fool for playing the hero. He could have avoided Jormungand for centuries. But no! Hela curses you and suddenly you think it's hero time. Before we finish here... I shall make you a believer in that delightful notion that death is only the beginning of eternal life. You shall long for death and live forever. That's the trouble with godhood. It robs you of your finer judgment. A deity so rarely has to pay for his mistakes. 
And Jormagan recaps the old prophecy that they are destined to slay each other. Jormagan will die first, and then Thor will take nine steps back before dying. Except Jormagan swears that he will inscribe Thor's name on a tombstone, and that the World Trade Center will be a monument to Thor of Asgard. Thor's having none of this and hurls Mjolnir at Jormungand. It dominates the page, just the hammer coming at us, like, foreshortened intensely, with a scream! And off-panel, Jormungand says, No! And Thor replies, Is it not said, Jormungand, that haste makes waste? Or are such trite epigrams beyond the proverbial wisdom of the serpent? I really like that each gives as good as they get, and for all of Jormungand's bluster, he fears Mjolnir. He isn't blustering. He's like, no, no, ah, don't hurt me, sort of, which is incredibly effective. Yeah, I mean, they each know Thor is Jormungand's bane, Jormungand is Thor's bane. It's right there in the mythology. And Simonson did a similar sketch of Mjolnir, just the extreme, like, close-up of him going toward the page at San Diego Comic-Con for the special IDW dinner that he did. So I I gotta brag a little. Um, one of my most prized possessions is a Simonson original sketch that um that my ex got me uh from Simonson for my birthday. I love it so much. Uh, he described it as just like a quick sketch that was barely anything, and of course it's amazing. <laughs> Lucky. Oh, see, I have that. I have the original hanging at home, and then a printout of it hanging at work. I remember that actually. That's cool. <laughs> Mjolnir connects with Jormungand's mouth with a gigantic golden flash that washes out the whole page and blinds Thor. He uses his cape for cover. This is one of my, I don't know, top 10 favorite pages here. It's so hard to pick because every page is just this beautiful work of art that I would happily have like dominate an entire wall. But this really is one of my favorites. I mean, seeing that Thor himself is almost blinded by the energy streaking forth from this impact, he who is already a god, he who fights with Mjolnir, and he still can't handle that brightness, the fact that the page goes almost entirely one color, yellow, the color that usually is, you know, power and impact and energy in this comic, so good. I'm always happy to see Thor using his cape, you know? It's it's great. He uses it for so many things. It's a sling, it's a bandage, it's sunglasses. It could be anything. I, you know, I, I keep coming back to Hitchhiker's Guide. Always know where your towel is. And here we come to another full hero shot of Thor as Mjolnir returns to his hand with a scree. The narration continues. Who witnessed the world's beginning? Who will watch the world's end? The towering world tree, Yggdrasil totters as nine worlds within its compass shiver. Mjolnir returned, its master called, and no power on earth may restrain it. I love how almost archaic this narration is. Like, you can almost hear some old person intoning it around a fire to a bunch of rapt children, these legends from the dawn of time. It's truly timeless. And then we see the loops of Jormungand twist and flail across the page, his head burning and smoking in the distance, and Thor, hammer held high, soaring in pursuit. At last! The serpent is hurt! I must press the advantage! But Jormungand quickly turns on Thor, mouth open wide. Careless Thor! A powerful blow, but the hammer you wield will not win a victory alone! And in your attack, you have dropped your guard. Farewell, hero. No seat in Valhalla for you. The Valkyrie shall never find the body of Thor and bear it thence. Enter the jaws of Jormungand and despair! 
And with a crawling, Jomagon snaps his jaws closed and only a scrap of Thor's cape escapes. Not another cape. Jormungand's rows upon rows of sharp, long teeth are the focus of this page. They are terrifying. Yes, and they look extraordinarily strong, but with a scratch, a golden explosion bursts out of Jormungand's mouth, shattering every one of those teeth. His parents are going to be really mad. I mean, they spent a lot of money on orthodontics. Right? Well, and I mean, you know, I'm sure Frigga's just going to be shaking her head about the whole cape thing. <laughs> Capes don't grow on trees, Thor. I mean, maybe in Asgard? I don't know. It's yeah, a magical place. Yeah, yeah, you never know. But I love these two pages together. They're just, I, you know, we were going to look in my original issues at whether they faced each other or whether there was a page turn in between. We didn't remember to do that before the episode, but I'm going to go home and do it after. And you, the listener, will know that I at least found out, and uh, I'll let you know somehow. I don't know. We can put it in the uh, in the summary of the episode. <laughs> It'll make no sense to anybody who hasn't already listened to the podcast. Perfect. But Thor, with Mjolnir swinging by his side, sails out of Jormungand's ruined mouth, poised to attack. And now Jormungand is smaller, with Thor, his back to us, his cape and armor gleaming, filling the page. And this is why we were talking about how even though every page is just a single panel, it's still incredibly dynamic, and it, the pacing and our focus and the feel of the story is still guided by the content of the art. The battle songs in Hope and Hatred Begun sang no longer. Silence gripped the earth. The worlds were frozen, even heaven watched, their eyes locked. Would you know more? And there's that refrain again, would you know more? I love that. I don't know if that's from something in particular or if Simonson came up with that himself, but it works so well to just guide the urgency of this grand conflict. And now we have a close-up of Thor's helmeted, bearded face, set and determined to rid the world of this great evil. Oh, Walter Simonson, this guy's art is just, I, I just want him to draw everything. I know, and I was reading this, I'm like, don't leave us. You know, it's like when you watch a movie you've seen a million times and you know how it ends, but you're like, maybe this time Walter Simonson will stay with us. Oh man, that's just one of the alternate Earths in the multiverse. <laughs> and Thor proclaims, Come ye furious storm, ye blinding lightning, ye roaring thunder. Gather now to me, that the glory and might of the God of Thunder may stand revealed as never before. The serpent himself has shown me the way. Mjolnir and Thor shall become one, the weapon of destiny sung by the ancient skalds. And now we have an extreme close-up of Jormungand's face with his jagged, ruined teeth. He sees that Thor is glowing with a blinding light and realizes he can wait no longer. Make your final peace with your fellow gods, Thor. You were a great foe. We are made of the same coin, you and I. Bold fighters with great hearts. Once you might have been my equal, in strength if not in wit. But my power is undiminished, while yours has fled just like your reason. Even your armor is not sufficient protection against the death thrust of Jormungand. And should you unleash your full power against me, you will destroy yourself. You face eternity as an immortal pudding. Not even a fool would court such a fate. So you will hesitate, 
and be lost. Scream! As I unleash my death strike! And Jormungand streaks across the sky in a golden stream of flame at the top of the page toward Thor, who is shining like the sun across the barren countryside. He actually looks like a cross. It kind of reminds me of the uh, energy impacts in Neon Genesis Evangelion, just that up and down and left and right. I mean, I guess that had the Christian symbolism, and this really doesn't. But still, it's just such a powerful image of energy just streaking off in the cardinal directions endlessly. Like, you get the impression that those energy beams just keep going through and past the curvature of the Earth's atmosphere. Atmosphere. And we see Thor in all his glory, holding Mjolnir with both hands in front of him, and he's blasting across the sky right at Jormungand. You said it yourself, Jormungand. The trouble with godhood is that it robs you of your finer judgment. And that is why we will never be the same. You are a mighty fighter, but in the end you are only a selfish creature, while heroes... Heroes have an infinite capacity for stupidity. Thus are legends born! And this page is a violent, white-hot flash, with Jormungand's coils barely visible as they collide with a world-shaking cream. So Mjolnir's mighty wielder surrendered gladly his guardianship of mortals. Odin's son embraced his doom without despair, slew the serpent, broke the world's silence. And here is where the pacing slows to almost a standstill. Jormungand's head is gone, just a burst nothing at the end of his body. The sky is filled with white-hot energy, with a white-hot explosion still expanding, as Thor, trailing smoke and fire, crashes down to Midgard. Nine steps the hero took, striding as a giant. Thor hurtles into the earth with another golden thrum that is so bright, Jormungand's recoiling coils seem to fade behind him, and indeed there are no black inks on the background, only the foreground, and I don't think that's a technique we've seen this entire run, but it's perfect. To earth he fell, wrecking not his resting place. Thor lies smoking, burning, in a crater, and there are four panels— as we get closer and closer to his fallen form, to see only black emptiness where his face should be. Silent his hammer. Mjolnir's song ended. This tale is told. Would you know more? Yes. We would. What an incredible last few pages. The pacing just, it's just time stands still the way the narration described earlier, but it's like it does for us, the reader, as we just watch as Thor falls and falls and falls, as he goes from a superhero in a comic to a figure in myth, to a figure from beyond time and space and reality. It blew my mind because I've paged through this, but I've never read it in depth as I did for this. And it was just awe-inspiring. Like, I know people talk a lot about Walter Simonson's Thor, but I feel like more people should be talking more about Walter Simonson's Thor. Right? Seriously, it is that good. And this issue is such a perfect highlight. I don't know if it would stand all that well on its own. I mean, it would be pretty cool, but just having the context of everything that came before, of everything Thor has been through, makes it so just emotional. Like, I was so incredibly invested. I knew what was going to happen. I mean, the reader knows what's going to happen from 
you know, page one, the narration's right there. But at the same time, you're just on the edge of your seat with every blow, every strike, every impact, every speech, and every fall. Fortunately, the parting narration breaks this tension. Next issue, The Old Shell Game, featuring the pulse-pounding return of the unstoppable enemy, the one foe Thor's never beaten, and right now the Thunder God can't even thumb-wrestle. Go ahead and skip this one. We dare you! Yeah, I, I kind of appreciate that Marvel did that, because I don't know if I could withstand, you know, just this continuing tension as we go on. And that brings us to our second to last issue of the run, Thor number 381, Ye Old Shell Game. And you mentioned that this takes place simultaneous to Mephisto versus number four. Oh, geez, it totally does. So you remember how Secret Wars and Secret Wars 2, especially the latter, kind of derailed Thor before? Here we have something similar happening, but in the second-to-last issue! Um, so Mephisto Versus was a four-issue miniseries that was coming out around this time in which Mephisto fights a different uh, group of superheroes every issue. Now, number three, he'd fought the X-Men, and in this issue we see a little bit of that. Number four, he fights the Avengers. So... I'll sum it up real quick. Basically, Mephisto, who's essentially the devil in Marvel, or at least a devil, and Hela are feuding over Dominion of the Dead. So Mephisto tries to take Thor's soul from his ruined body so that when they have their inevitable conflict between the armies of the dead, Mephisto will have this mighty warrior on his side. Makes sense, right? So Mephisto revives Thor and rebuilds his body. Thor's now fully intact, and he offers Thor the gift of death merely in exchange for his soul. Thor, of course, refuses because he's Thor, so Mephisto just pulls the soul out of Thor's body and wraps it in, I kid you not, Mystic Mylar. It's seriously like one of those bags you put comics in, but he puts Thor's soul in it instead. Like, it, it, maybe there's a reading of that that's not completely ridiculous, but, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> I didn't know they did meta so far back. I know, right? So Mephisto and Hela fight over the uh, carefully preserved soul, the battle going back and forth, but Mephisto can't break Thor during this. He can't convince Thor to just give up. Thor's willing to endure a thousand agonies just to be free and says him nay. So Hela declares victory, as saying eventually Thor's soul will be hers. Apparently, though, that was Mephisto's idea all along because the soul is powerful enough to destroy her. And during this, the Avengers try to interfere. They all get knocked out. They all get their memories wiped. Like I said, the details aren't important. What is important is that this all takes place in a big ring of fire that Mephisto puts up to separate Thor's body from the world. So there you go. <laughs> Did Mephisto also do something with Jormungand's body? Like, what happened there? I wasn't really addressed. To be honest, <laughs> the issue's not all that great. Maybe they, like, solved world hunger. Maybe everybody cut up Jormungand and had steak and everything. I mean, I, I have eaten rattlesnake before. It's like a sort of very oily, greasy, chewy chicken, I guess. Oh, well. I'm not yeah. sure that I would recommend it. Yeah, there's the poison stuff, too. I guess not. Oh, yeah, there is that. So, <laughs> back. To Thor. And we see in the Delaware Water Gap, Grundroth and his frost giants seek out Thor, hopefully fallen after his battle with Jormungand because they're a bunch of vultures, and they stride right through Mephisto's flame wall. Because they have icy powers from Iceman. 
even though the Avengers, Earth's Mightiest Heroes, couldn't get through, eh, you know, whatever. But the Avengers are there. This is during the part of Mephisto versus the Avengers, where they are knocked unconscious around Thor's body, and Thor's soul is in kind of the astral death hell plane with Mephisto and Hela. And I have to say, you know, I brought up before that I used to read the Avengers to Sid every night before bed. So it was kind of cool to see Thor back with the Avengers, even if they were all unconscious. It's true, yeah. Um, And actually, right around this time is when the X-Men vs. Avengers miniseries, not Avengers vs. X-Men, but X-Men vs. Avengers, takes place. So you get to see Thor in his sweet armor hanging out with the Avengers. Nice. Well, Grundroth lifts the seemingly empty armor, but realizes it's still heavy and warm, and Thor is literally jelly flesh inside of it. That is A, ew, and B, really genuinely, like, genuinely troubling. I'm, I'm not okay with that. It's super, super horrifying to imagine yourself as some sort of sentient jellied flesh. Oh, man. I guess you'd have a spot in the monster manual or something, but still. <laughs> but they seal the face hole of his armor shut with a cloth scrap so he doesn't, you know, squeeze out, and they smash the heck out of his body through the armor. God damn. Yeah, it's like a horrifying version of Office Space and Thor's the fax machine. <laughs> <laughs> it totally is. Oh, so outside... Everyone's favorite reporter, Chuck Churkle, and his news crew watch the flames, but they immediately forget why they're there, presumably due to Hela's uh, forgetfulness spell that she cast on the Avengers uh, while she claimed Thor. Um, now, what's weird here is that the art implies that it's one of the generic white guys with the news crew that's Chuck Churkle, and the character we've seen as Chuck before, the black character with sort of the short, fuzzy hair, is just the cameraman. That really confuses me. I don't know what's going on here. I mean, maybe Hela's spell like went out into the real world and like infected Salbusema. Oh, and he, uh, you know, that makes sense. Uh, Elizabeth, you win a no prize. <laughs> oh, awesome. Thank you. It'll be in the mail. <laughs> but the uh, giants escape just in time as the Avengers wake up, also forgetting. Now, Loki's watching this whole thing in his astral form. He is furious that the giants left him in debt to Thor, because, of course, Thor saved Loki from the giants. Uh, so he arranges some magical vengeance. So as the giants bang on Thor more, one sees a pretty giant lady. Aren't you Sigurd, one of those brave fellows who captured Thor? I'm Girthrud, and I'd really like to get close to one of you lads. <laughs> She's quite a looker. So he walks to her and with a skapath, freezes in place on the metal leg she's standing on. And when the light dies down, the Destroyer is there. The Destroyer, dread juggernaut of another era, fashioned by the Allfather himself to be the weapon of last resort. Equipped with the power and armament to face any foe and destroy him. And that's what he does. He brutally annihilates the giants with beams of pure destruction. I almost feel bad for them. I mean, the giants are awful, awful people, but there's just no contest here. Like, it's not a back and forth fight like the way it was between Thor and Jormungand. The destroyer just fires lasers at them from his hands and they are all dead. Like, immediately, these characters we've seen plotting and scheming for multiple issues. 
Yeah, the giants, I mean, even Frigga takes pity on them at one point. Like, they're just kind of bumbling, like, villains of opportunity. They try to pick their moments when they'll definitely win. You know, they beat on foes when they can't fight back. Like, they're pretty despicable, but they're also fairly hapless. Yeah. So, okay, a brief primer on the Destroyer. Who's the Destroyer? Why, the Destroyer is a suit of Uru armor. That is so much Uru, and there's not very much of it in the world, so it's very impressive. Created by Odin thousands of years ago, to eventually oppose the Celestials. Who are they? That's outside the scope of this podcast. They're basically big space gods. And the Destroyer is unstoppable. It's like if Curse had disintegration beams. The Destroyer cannot be defeated, straight up, and that's very clear. But in the past, the Destroyer's always been animated by the will of another. Is that the case now? We shall see. So Grundroth uses Thor's body to block the Destroyer's blasts. Because, of course, Thor's armor is indestructible, and Thor's flesh, I guess, sort of is. But the Destroyer just zaps beams from his eyes at his own fist, which splits the beam to either side, and thus hits Grundroth to either side, killing him super dead. It's like putting your thumb on a garden hose, but way, way, way more, you know, lethal. That seems surprisingly crafty for the Destroyer. You know, the Destroyer's good at one thing, and that's destroying. (laughs) But Loki's astral form is still watching as the Destroyer tries to destroy Thor, but he can't. And Loki helpfully villain-splains to us all how he brought a life force to the slag to awaken. The Celestials in Thor number 300 annihilated the Destroyer, melting him into a lake of liquid metal, and all it took was another life force, and the Destroyer's right back there. So that was the giant, then. Yeah, that was poor Sigorth. I fear the female giant that I so gloriously voiced was an illusion. Illusion. Loki, the master of illusions, says, Enjoy yourself, brother. Perhaps I shall return in a few hundred years to see how the two of you are getting on. Ha 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 ha. Yeah, the Destroyer is just beating the hell out of Thor seemingly endlessly. I don't know if you're a mass of jellied flesh, if you can really continue to feel pain, because, like, you don't have any parts. But I'm assuming it's pretty unpleasant to be, you know, sloshed around. Oh, guys! (laughs) It is seriously so gross. This is making me not want to eat Jell-O ever again. (laughs) And I love Jell-O. It's a Thor parfait. (laughs) Like when you get the Jell-O that has, like, the pineapple and the walnuts in it, it's so gross. <laughs> oh, I don't like this. I don't like this at all. What would be in a Thor Jello? Um. Golden raisins? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a, a great single. Uh, what's what's really hard and impossible to chew that could be Mjolnir? Uh, a bit of honey? I don't know. <laughs> ooh, ooh, um, peanut brittle. There we go. <laughs> Whosoever wields this peanut brittle, be he well. <laughs> I think we may be digressing just a little bit here. (laughs) Yes. So Loki leaves and the Destroyer ponders. He's found an indestructible life force. Now, this is notable because before the Destroyer has never had like its own consciousness, let alone its own thought bubbles. I have subjected this body to molecular disruptors, nuclear ripsaws and antimatter particle beams. I have reduced the armor in the body to plasma and reconstructed them completely. Man, I love the juxtaposition between all the science talk and Asgardian-ness. That's one of the things I like most about the Destroyer in general, really. He's a robot scientist. Pretty much. And so this part gets weird. The Destroyer confronts Thor, 
astrally, like on the astral plane. Their spirit forms fight each other. The Destroyer is trying to absorb Thor so that no one can ever control it again, so that it'll, it'll have a life force of its own to power itself. Now, it should be noted, the Destroyer doesn't recognize Thor. Much like to Jormungand, the beard and armor means that Thor looks like a different person to a robot. So you're saying that the Destroyer is probably racist as well. Oh man, I guess so. <laughs> but Thor, he's reinvigorated by being able to move again, kind of, and he refuses. And when the Destroyer recognizes him, it is horrified because this is the son of Odin. This is the son of the guy that created it. This is the figure it has vied against time and time again over its history, one of the most powerful warriors in existence. This is not what it signed up for. And this is kind of a disturbing scene as Thor astrally wrestles the terrified destroyer who keeps saying, no, 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 as Thor takes over the destroyer's body and forces him back into the real world. And in that real world, the Destroyer moves for the first time in a long time, sending the still-present, confusingly identified news crew scurrying away, and the Destroyer picks up Thor's cape, and Thor's headwings, and Thor's belt, and dons them all, and it then lifts Mjolnir. Thor ain't Thor without his cape and wings, you know? He's got branding. But this is just such a, are you kidding me, holy crap, moment like who saw this coming nobody saw this coming yeah it's incredible plus he kind of looks like optimus prime so he's like transformer thor oh you know that kind of face grill thing he has it does look like the semi face grill that prime has but he teleports away using mjolnir leaving thor's armor with the thor goo behind so that is an unexpected turn for the mighty thor to have taken as it goes into the final double-sized issue of Simonson's Run, which identifies itself as a 300th anniversary issue, but it's 382. How can that be? Well, it's because Thor didn't originally appear when Journey into Mystery started. It wasn't till 300 issues before this when he did, which is rad. That's pretty awesome, but at the same time, Marvel was playing fast and loose with numbering even back in the day, which in itself is kind of comforting. You know, they're actually doing it again because with the whole Marvel Legacy thing, they show you the math for how the new number 700, number 600, whatever, are numbered, and Thor number 700's about to come out, but they count the Journey into Mystery issues that Thor wasn't even in, which seems like a bit of a cheat. Yeah, totally. Come on, Marvel. We have Marvel Unlimited accounts. We can go back and check. <laughs> I gotta say, though, the um the big uh, double-page cover that Russell Dodderman did for Thor number 700 is so cool. It's got Frog Thor on it. <gasps> what? I'm gonna have to look at this. Oh, I want great. this. And like a bunch of other Thors, but Frog Thor. You never see him. Yeah. Thor number 382 is named, of course, Journey into Mystery. And Loki has come to visit Hela in spirit in hell. Hela snipes at Loki about his many failures to humble and defeat Thor. I wish you to witness my final victory over your stepbrother. Today, Thor shall become Hela's, and the victory you never had shall be mine. Well, it's looking like maybe Hela's not a prophet, because at the gates of hell, Garm, the hell wolf, raises his hackles as a living thing tries to enter hell, but this living thing is, in fact, the Destroyer. And the Destroyer quickly blasts Garm into submission and makes his way into hell, making a nine-day journey, which we saw issues ago, in nine minutes. 
And that is such a beautiful use of past story. I mean, we felt every dark day and night, every trudging step of that journey and the story arc in which it occurred. So we know we are very familiar with what it should be. And the fact that the Thor destroyer, whatever, just blasts its way through that quickly, that is a terrifying level of power. And he makes his way to Yallerbrew, the bridge to hell, and Modgud flees. Yeah, I mean, we saw that happen once before, but that time it was all of the Unharriar and Thor himself having just defeated Hela. This time it is this one steadily advancing metal entity. That's one of the things I like about the way that the Thor Destroyer thing is drawn. Like, it just seems so indifferent. We don't see those dynamic poses, those action shots. It just walks forward, and when it zaps stuff, it just raises one arm. Like, there's no uh, there's no tension, there's no excitement, there's just deliberate efficiency. Yeah, we talked about how the Destroyer, you know, has one purpose. He's like a gun, you know? He doesn't need any flourishes or any extras. Like, he is here for one purpose, to destroy. But Hela doesn't realize this. She smiles in triumph, thinking that Thor has arrived at last. However, when the figure steps into the foreground and destroys, just demolishes her skeleton army, it's pretty clear this wasn't the plan. While Loki cackles in glee, Thor reveals his true identity to a dumbstruck Hela. Loki is tickled green. Thor, my stepbrother, now do I love thee forever. Do you still not see, my daughter? This is Thor's true gift. Not only is he the greatest warrior in all the nine worlds, but also the luckiest. And after saying this, Loki quickly flees before Thor Destroyer blasts even his astral form into smithereens, leaving Hela to cower. May the luck of the gods be with you, Hela. Particularly my luck. Luck, Mistress of Death, shall not serve you now. For mine is the power of the God of Thunder, and the power of Great Odin who made the Destroyer. Power unvanquishable, even by death herself. And Thor offers Hela a deal. If she will restore his body, the Destroyer shall spare her realm. If not, he will destroy her and her kingdom. Hela doesn't believe this. She refuses. She doesn't believe that Thor would destroy the balance of the Nine Worlds, and she still wants him to beg her forgiveness. So Thor Destroyer immediately begins destroying everything and everyone. And he even tosses aside Mjolnir, saying, What need have I for a mere hammer, when the energies within my frame are powerful enough to divide even worlds in twain? The real death has come to hell! And Hela quickly realizes that the Destroyer can and will actually kill her. She fears that Thor's noble spirit has been submerged by the Destroyer. So she sends out a bolt of necrotic energy to release Thor from her curse so he can finally die, which in theory would disempower and deanimate the Destroyer. But the Destroyer has already thought of this. He has sent out his own bolt of energy and has encased Thor's body in crystal that only he can break. And he just destroys an enormous swath of Hela's kingdom. He just keeps going. And he says that she can just watch until he kills her too. When suddenly... Scourge appears. Scourge who died valiantly saving the Asgardians and holding back the Hounds of Hell and is now trapped in hell with Hela. And he appeals to Thor's nobility. Thor, mine ancient enemy, 
Hear my plea. Tis scourge, the once and former executioner whom thou didst know in another place, another time. Bound within thine indestructible body is one of the noblest souls of all. If anywhere there is but a trace of that nobility left, let it reach out and halt this madness before it is too late. Thor, my friend! And there's a pause as the destroyer in Thor's garb appears to listen and consider. And then it almost, as an afterthought, slap Scourge out of the panel. And that is brutal. We've seen what a hero Scourge is, and finally he's back talking to our protagonist, and this is what happens? That would be a terrible place to leave on a cliffhanger, so let's do exactly that, because we haven't talked much about what's been going on in Asgard as Thor's been doing his thing. Yes, as you may remember, Loki has released sort of a sleeping death plague on Asgard, and there are just a few survivors. And the mortal children, Mick and Kevin, are two of the only people who are unaffected, presumably because they're not Asgardians, they're not gods. They're currently in Volstagg's home, surrounded by a bunch of fallen gods, the only people awake, and they're sobbing, they're terrified. They lost their mother when they were back on Midgard, star, Earth, and now their new family appears like they might be dead as well. So we see Curse, the dark elf who has been turned into this powerful being. He's sitting unmoving in an empty room where he's been since he killed Malekith. Yeah, and Curse, as a reminder, was kind of like the Destroyer, albeit less gray and more orange and spiky, in that he was just a being of pure, well, vengeance, basically. He had been horribly almost killed, given great powers by the Beyonder to get revenge, and revenge was all that fueled him. Once he killed Malekith, yeah, like you said, he's just been still. So something else appears to be motivating Curse as he's drawn to the room where Kevin and Mick are. Maybe he hears the crying. And Kevin, he doesn't know that Curse is a monster, so he just begs him for help for Curse to take them and Hildy to Balder, who he refers to as the president of Asgard. Which is kind of adorable. And Curse sees the children, or at least is reminded of, Dark Elf children. He remembers his mortal life back when he had things to his identity other than just vengeance. And he picks the children up. This actually reminds me of something similar that happened in the Power Pack issue where Curse appeared around the Secret Wars 2 crossover. He saw the Power Pack as Dark Elf children, and that slowed him down. That awakened just a little bit of the humanity that was still somehow left within that metal form. But Curse and the kids make it to Balder, who is motionless, until he starts making bird noises. Kevin and Mick wonder if Balder's gone crazy, but kids, don't worry about it. That's just Balder being Balder. It's just a thing he does. The fact that Balder can speak to birds has always been referred to, but I don't think we've actually seen it vocalized. And he's saying like, but the thing is, like, he's talking to Hugan and Moon and he's talking to ravens. I've heard ravens. They make a sound that's sort of like a grog. It's really (laughs) undignified. It's like Arrested Development where everybody has a really terrible chicken impression. (laughs) (laughs) I I just want to put Balder in that show. I mean, I really do. (laughs) It works, though. Hugan and Moonin pull a crystal vial out of Balder's pocket and give it to the kids who are confused. Uh, Is this a consolation prize? So they don't know what to do, but Curse takes the vial from them delicately and gently pours it into Balder's mouth. This is very unexpected. This is not Curse's style. It's pretty awesome. And it turns out that this is the rest of the water of life from the Well of Weird. And he's okay, or at least recovering now. Right. 
And at this point, Volstag comes in. Somehow he's sort of all right as well. He's relieved that Hildy is also now sort of okay. He's immediately suspicious of Curse, but everyone assures him, nah, Curse is doing good stuff. It's fine. But this is weird. You had a theory as to why Volstag and Hildy were resistant to the plague, right? Okay, so I don't know if this was intentional, but there was that one time when Volstagg took Hildegoon to where the sword Twilight was lying invisibly shielded by Loki, and they got really sick, but then Volstagg knocked over some rocks, and it crushed the machine that was making the sword do bad stuff, and the plague was lifted. So maybe they got kind of, like, inoculated against sleepy, deathy curses? Yeah, it's like a vaccine that, like, activated their natural, like, defenses. I'm going to say that's probably canon. Yeah, let's just go for it. You get a no prize. Yes, I get one too. <laughs> so Curse carries Balder to Hlidskjalf, and they see Utgard Loki plotting. Because Utgard Loki is leading his giants to war, even though Grundroths have been destroyed. So we've got Balder, Volstag, Curse, Hildi, Kevin, and Mick. They are the only Asgardians and Asgardian-adjacent people who have escaped the sleeping sickness. And then we have the Frost Giants, like... A ton of them, led by Utgard Loki, approaching to attack a damn near helpless Asgard. Crush all the houses, break all the floors, the giants of Jotunheim are kicking in the doors. I love sinking bad guys! Ever since that one Rankin-Bass Lord of the Rings movie? Also, listeners, I'd like to point out Elizabeth just came up with that tune, like, as she read the line, so props, Elizabeth. (laughs) Well, you know, I like me a good musical every so often. (laughs) Oh, man. Let's just redo Simonson's run as musical theater. It'll be amazing. (laughs) Thor in the park! Oh, it'd be wonderful. Although, you know, this could make for a pretty sweet rock opera. (gasps) Yes! Oh, dude. I love everything about this. I think that'll be our next project. (laughs) There we go. That sounds easy. (laughs) So Volstagg believes that Asgard is doomed. But back in the throne room, Balder is taking stock of their situation. And it's not good. I mean, everyone is frozen. Carnilla's kingdom is also stone. And they don't have time to reach any other allies. Well, Volstagg proclaims his loyalty no matter what. And then the giants arrive. So Balder does what Balder does. He puts on his hat, he leaves the children in Curse's care to Volsag's discomfort, and goes alone to confront the marauding giants. Well met, courageous warriors. The sight of so much fortitude attacking empty dwellings is awe-inspiring indeed. Truly, the giants of Utgard-Loki are fighters without peer. Shade, Balder, yeah. Oh, I hope you're not made of ice, because you just got... Wait, they are made of ice. Ah, <laughs> burn! But the sight of Balder terrifies the giants at first. In fact, they immediately are like, we have to flee! But then they realize he has been weakened by the plague, and they rush to attack a lone Balder. I feel like this could have been done differently. I mean, Balder doesn't have a lot of resources, but you know what he does have? A bunch of Asgardian bodies just lying around. I mean, I'm just saying... Weekend at Baldur's, he could trick the giants into thinking that all the <laughs> Asgardians are still up and about. You know, he could, like, hang them from various, like, marionette strings or prop them up against things and, you know, move their mouths up and down as he talks in their voice. Like, he, I, I bet he could do a really good Hogan the Grim impression. Oh, totally. You know, just put hats on everybody and put some sunglasses on them and, you know, just let them go to town. There is nothing wrong with this plan. That'll be part of our rock opera. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> as Baldur dodges the giants, the kids do their part, toppling barrels on the giants and when one of the giants is menacing the children curse steps into the ring and defends them and at the kids urging goes to help balder 
So Volstag returns from checking for giants in other parts of the city, and he's promptly captured by a giant who then drops the very heavy Volstag on his toes. Volstag is quite pleased with this clearly deliberate heroic act he just did. Well struck, Volstag. Long will it be before that one attacks a warrior of Asgard again. He's broken my toes! I really enjoy the number of times that Volstag does something completely accidentally and it genuinely does turn the tide. Yeah, it's true. I mean, he's like, it's like long shots, like luck, you know? He's kind of got this luck that just turns everything on its side. It's pretty great. So that's Asgard back in hell. The Queen of the Dead is now at the Destroyer's mercy. The Destroyer who now appears to have abandoned any of the nobility or indeed personality at all of Thor. Woe that I ever challenged Thor and brought us to this pass! The Destroyer is about to kill the Goddess of Death until she takes a page from Grundroth's playbook and shields herself with Thor's armored body. And this blast shatters the crystal, so Hela strains to touch the body to presumably kill Thor, but the Destroyer starts to strangle her. Father! <coughs> Father! Loki spirit returns, and he's, he's not a good dad. You'll have to speak up, my dear. I can hardly hear you. Have you humbled Thor enough, do you think? But surely you haven't called me here to aid you, Hela. Did you not say I was come only to witness your final victory? The victory I never had? Now, the Destroyer says that Thor alive is more valuable to Hela anyway than Thor would be in Hell. I mean, Thor's the one that keeps sending souls to Hell, right? Absolutely. So desperately, Hela reaches Thor's body and restores it. And the Destroyer begins to laugh. Hela quickly realizes that it was Thor the entire time, and in rage, she begins to fight anew when Loki, of all people, stops her. He says that her pride has already basically cost her her kingdom, and really, Thor is right. She will need Thor to send her some new dead people ASAP because the Destroyer has, you know, crunched all her skeletons. And then Loki tells Thor about the desperate situation in Asgard, of course neglecting to mention his part. Unsurprisingly, Thor prepares to go to Asgard. Hel is confused and wonders why Loki helped her and also helped Thor, the killer of Jormungand, the killer of Loki's son. Loki, of course, doesn't care about his son or any prophecies. He wants to be the one to kill Thor. So Loki ports away, and Hela swears to Thor at his demand that she won't take any more souls that don't belong to her ever again. So Thor returns to his now healed body and leaves the Destroyer encased in crystal as a gift to Hela and as a reminder about the folly of pride. Kind of like the Eternal Flame in Asgard, or Twilight in Asgard. And Thor goes to apologize to Scourge for hitting him, but Scourge realized what was up. He asks if Thor and Baldur ever had that drink to Scourge that they had promised. Nay, we have not. Time has ever been against us, it seems. Then that shall be my price. Take Baldur and the Warriors Three and any other who will, and have that drink in peace. Rejoice in living, for it is more wonderful than can be dreamt. And remember Scourge. Oh, man, I love this scene. Like, how did this two-bit villain become one of the most dramatic, like, admirable characters in comics? Yeah, that is definitely one of those fantastic 180-degree turns in a fictional history that I can think of right now. 
As Thor departs, Hela tells him that Loki was the one that set the plague on Asgard. She's not standing up for her dad after this. And then she returns, at Thor's request, the gift of death to him. So he's now been restored to a non-jelly body that doesn't get injured super easily, and he can die. He's back to his old self, albeit still in some pretty sweet armor. Then Hela compliments Scourge on his bravery. And I love this monologue. You are magnificent. Not unlike Thor. Such courage as yours is too full of life for this cheerless realm, and should dwell with other kindred spirits. I kept you here because I honored your bravery in the past. I release you now to Valhalla for the same reason. Maybe that Thor will greet thee and you can share his drink. Would that I could do the same. One of the tropes I really enjoy in comics, we actually saw recently as Grendel and the Dark Elves saluted Thor before they were going to kill him, is a villain who's still super, super a villain, but comes to respect a hero just by their sheer level of virtue. And seeing that here with this character Scourge, who every time another character respects him after what happened with the Enchantress, like it just feels so good. It's, it's satisfying, and it, it really makes me respect Hela even more as well. Absolutely. And Scourge finally gets sort of the final resting place that he deserves. You know, he was a two bit villain. You would have thought that he would have gone for the straw death, but he has earned a place in Valhalla. And in fact, we'll totally see him there in a New Mutants issue that comes out not too long after this, and it's super satisfying. Nice. So Scourge wonders if Hela has a heart after all, and Hela muses to herself that no one will ever know, because it seems like she wanted Thor in hell because she loved him? Foolish goddess, to have ever dreamt of being a woman in the secret corners of your heart. But leave not even sweet dreams behind, Thor. For they trouble the sleeping hours of Hela ever and anon. And a death goddess can only be scorched standing so near the flame of life. Mixed feelings. Yeah, I do not like that. I like the last part, the whole can only be scorched by standing near life, but Hela basically having a crush on Thor? I, I, I don't see it. Yeah, I, I don't feel like that was what was implied at all. And I really liked that Hela was after Thor because she felt shamed by him and wanted to get her power back. Not that, you know, she had his picture under her pillow. Oh, well, I mean, you know, not everything has to be perfect. But that is another plotline wrapped up, and really, we just have one to go. Just the fate of Asgard, currently under siege by Frost Giants. So the Frost Giants are freezing everything in Asgard, but Thor arrives just in time and says he's going to kill them all. Uh, Balder asks Thor to show mercy, because as soon as Thor shows up, the fight is basically over. Utgard Loki may be able to cure the plague, and if Thor kills the giants, that's not going to happen. And we have indeed seen Utgard Loki do a bunch of plaguey stuff in the past, so it follows. Absolutely, and you mentioned that this reminded you of when Frigga also asked Thor to spare the giants. Yeah, and the deal is struck, and the giants leave peacefully. Everyone is reunited, and Balder and Thor leave to have that drink for Scourge at long last. If you want to pause the podcast and have a drink yourself, now would be a great time. So now we come to an epilogue. The Asgardians are all cured, and Loki is sulking in his castle with a spilled drink, of course, when Thor comes to visit. Thor wants to settle their debts. Loki insists, no, we're already even. I mean, uh, you saved me from Grundroth, but me recreating the Destroyer let you defeat Hela. And they discuss the future. 
Loki tells Thor to watch his back, and Thor tells Loki to watch his front. That kind of sums up the relationship right there, doesn't it? Pretty much. And then Thor hits Loki's arm with Mjolnir, breaking that arm. This is payback for that time that Thor spent in an iron shell, largely due to Loki's meddling. And Thor bids Loki farewell as Loki clutches his ruined arm and sails through the sky. My heart is lighter than it hath been in many a long day. Mayhap I should visit my stepbrother more often. Look out, you giants and trolls! Beware, you denizens of the depths and dwellers in the fortresses of evil! Gird up thy loins, you harbingers of death and destruction! Let those in direst need lift up their voices that I may hear them! The god of thunder is loose, and woe to those who would harry the innocent and the weak! For they shall have a champion. So be it! And gleaming in the sunlight, the mighty Thor soars across the sky like a bright star. May his hammer ever strike in the cause of justice. So say we all. So say we all. That is that. That is the whole run. Jeez Louise. I know, right? Like... Oh, I don't even know how long this episode's going to turn out. I suspect very long, but it just feels like you get so caught up in these arcs, reading them and reading them this closely, letting the passion that Simonson and Buscema and everybody put through them come through. This is basically as good as comics gets. It really is. I mean, I was kind of taken aback when Thor broke Loki's arm, but... I guess they are brothers and, you know, kids kind of play like that. It was eye for an eye and arm for an arm. And, you know, I mean, not that Thor's a vengeful dude, but that was just a tiny bit of what happened to Thor because of Loki. But I just love that we have this note of optimism and hope and of Thor after all he's been through, just grinning as he flies gleaming through the air, knowing that he is a hero. He's going to make the world or the worlds, as the case may be a better place. Like, things are back where they should be finally. And that, almost more than Thor's defeat of Hela, almost more than Thor's defeat of Jormungand, that's the happy ending we get, is Thor being the hero that we know he can be again. Thor having enough power to make the world the best place he can. Think about how this whole arc started. You know, you have Thor being humbled by Beta Ray Bill, kind of losing his girl to him, and rising above it, and... Every step of the way, he's kind of had to push down and find that essential grit to keep going. And here he's he's achieved it. He's lost everything, but he's discovered who he truly is. And that's a bedrock that no one can take away from him. Absolutely. It's beautiful. We have a few more words to share, but before we do, this of all times, we must truly decide upon our recognitions of merit. Elizabeth? The stage is yours for the Crack-A-Doom Award. Now, really, almost every sound effect from issue 380 was a candidate, but I picked the Crack-A-Doom as Thor crashed into a mountain. Not only because it seems fitting to end our Crack-A-Doom Awards with an actual Crack-A-Doom, but the font treatment. Half of it is angular and yellow, half exploded in purple. It just really conveyed the impact and the explosion of Thor hitting that mountain. Yeah, this is a medium, I'd say the only medium where you can do this kind of thing, where you can tell a story within the design and placement of a word. I love it. 
Well, why don't you bring us the Hell's Haberdashery Award? So, unlike the Crack of Doom Award, which you said was easy due to the uh, riches contained sound effect-wise within number 380, this was a hard one because all of the wearers of the finest hats in the nine worlds were basically asleep and off-panel for this entire arc. So what does that leave us with? Why, that leaves us with the Destroyer. I mean, look at this dude. He's this big gray mass of just efficient destruction, and nowhere is that conveyed better than his face, than his head, than this sort of impassive horizontal blinds thing over most of his face, than this giant tuning fork or maybe bold-faced letter Y above it that he lowers to fire his disintegrator beam. He's clearly a creature of fantasy, but any bit of individuality or spirit or willpower or emotion is just gone. All he has is a thing that flips up and down to fire pure disintegration. Now, that would probably get the award on its own, but when it really does is when Thor's spirit enters the Destroyer and puts those headwings onto the side of that sweet helmet face thing. Part of it is just that it looks incredibly badass. I mean, the contrast of the bright white with the dull gunmetal gray, it works really well. But part of it is that it's also kind of scary. I mean, seeing something as inhuman as the Destroyer with part of the regalia of Thor, who's like all about emotion and passion, it's it's a little disturbing, and that suits the story that it appears in so perfectly well. So yeah, firing on all cylinders, including the disintegrator beam one. With that, what about our whatsoever holds this hammer award for the worthiest object? So this again was fairly easy for me to pick because I chose the Destroyer. Not only was it a wonderful callback to Thor's past, but it was an impressive and truly metal <laughs> way for Thor to resolve his issues with Hela. Like, one, it was just incredibly badass. Like, it's such a surprise when he shows up and you're like, how is this even going to work? But it made sense storyline-wise for Thor to have this indestructible body, you know, after his own had been so weakened by Hela's curse and then turned into jelly. Like, it was just a really clever way for him to go and defeat Hela. Totally. And also, I mean, this is the Whatsoever Holds This Hammer Award, and that suit of armor did, in fact, hold the hammer. <gasps> I didn't even think about that. Oh, it's right there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, this leads us to our final Most Metal Moment Award. <sighs> there were a lot of candidates, and there have been a lot of candidates throughout Walter Simonson's run, but in this arc, there really can be only one option, and honestly... This takes a lot of our other battle moments and gives them a run for their money as well. This is Thor's final impact with Jormungand. The whole sequence from that initial crash into the fall that stretched out over pages and pages. The narration slowing the pace of the comic into the pace of history. The pace of myth. And Thor's last line about heroes having an infinite capacity for stupidity ending with, Thus are legends born! It's perfect because, yeah, Thor's right. Thus are legends born. Thor has become what he represents. He has become the will to serve and save others. The knowledge that no sacrifice is too great to save the world from the forces that would destroy it, just to make the world a better place. He exists to improve the Nine Realms. He exists to be a force of power on the side of right, to go against forces for power on the side of selfish, wicked might. He's just become a concept. He's become an archetype. 
it sums up the arc that began last episode really well, too. This charging headlong into oblivion with a clear conscience, that's something Thor had to learn to do. I mean, he's been heroic all the time, but he had never been faced with true vulnerability, true mortality. Well, not exactly mortality, but, you know, knowledge that he would be demolished, broken and shredded and beaten by the absorbing man, by the wrecker, by whatever. He's gotten past that. He's gotten past himself. It's almost like he's transcended his ego, transcended his individual identity. It's also a nice redux of Loki's biggest criticism of Thor. And an echo of one of the runs, and certainly the arc's biggest themes, which is that what may seem foolish to someone like Loki or Jormungand, the sacrifice of the self for others, that's true valor. That's true virtue. Even in loss lies victory. Even in death lies immortality. It's a beautiful summation of what it means to be a hero, sure, but also what it means to be Thor in Marvel Comics, Thor as written by Walter Simonson. This is such a big part of what we can take away from this run. Thor's an aspirational hero, not just because he's got giant muscles and sweet hair and a little and a cool helmet with a little spike on top, but because he does things like this, because he is someone like this. We can all learn from that, whether we fight dragons or just our day-to-day struggles. That was perfectly put, Miles. <laughs> Thank you. And so that is what we have for you, valorous listeners. Elizabeth, what was it like for you to cover Simonson's run. Oh my gosh. So I remember more than two years ago when you first asked me to fill in as guest co-host on Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. And I had this moment of like being thrilled and then just this pure panic and then this underlying steel that was like, what, are you going to say no to this? No, you're going (laughs) to do this. You're going to jump into it and you're going to commit. So I kind of had that same moment when you asked me to do this, like just like all this excitement and then sheer terror because in a way, well, in two ways, subbing on Explain the X-Men was easier. One, because I've marinated in, you know, X-Men for more than 30 years. But two, it's not my show. It's not my responsibility. I can just kind of show up and (laughs) and if it doesn't work out, who cares? Like people aren't going to remember. But with this, like I definitely wasn't as well-versed Uh, you know, in Thor as you are. And it was definitely kind of, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. But, you know, I have to say that I learned so much from this experience. And I feel like you personally taught me so much about like, what makes a good podcast? Like, you really helped me like see things from different angles, see things from you, the dear readers, uh, listeners uh, viewpoint. And that just made it incredible. So thank you. I I don't know what to say. (laughs) Oh, damn. I mean, I'm so glad. And dude, thank you. Like, seriously, when when this podcast started, there was really only one choice for a co-host. We'd worked together before and I I saw that that valor, that Uru steel within you. (laughs) And you've just gotten better and better and better. So yes, keep podcasting. Do that thing. But yeah, I I guess uh, about Thor, I mean, that's that's the run. And like, Getting a chance to, to to go through this in such great detail, I mean, I'd read it before, you were new to it, but there's just so much richness and texture and deliberate little details that make it beautiful. And those, I mean, we did find some things we didn't like as much, certainly. Like, I know, man, the, the, the gender portrayal, I, I hadn't really caught that when I was a kid. <laughs> but overall, this run absolutely lives up to its reputation. Absolutely. But you know what really, really put the cherry on this podcast was our Odin, uh, Kali Yount, our producer, who did the 
freaking best Odin voice. I was super sad that Odin disappeared, not just for Thor's, you know, sake, but for ours. So thank you very much, Kyle. I'm just glad I could help. (laughs) (laughs) And also, yeah, Kyle, thank you for producing this show. Like, listeners, you don't hear the raw files here. Kyle uses magic to make the show sound as good as it does. And he's like as much of a part of this show as we are. It's all dark elf magic. I thought you were a wizard. <laughs> Dark elf wizard? From the depths of Svartalfheim. So, thank you, listeners. Thanks to everybody who has listened to our show, who has told your friends about us, who has donated so that we could do this. And especially to our blog commenters. And, uh, yeah, special shout out to uh, a lot of people, but Baron B and Vord99 wrote just volumes and volumes of incredible text. We learned so much from them and the other commenters about Norse mythology, about the history of the Thor comic and of Marvel comics in general. Like, if you haven't checked out the comments on our blog, there's some really good stuff there from so many incredible people. Good enough that Walter Simonson himself was actually reading some and responded to some questions on Twitter. So we got that going for us. It was pretty awesome. And speaking of, thank you to all of our various followers on Facebook, Twitter, and tumblr whether you interact with us or not it's been so cool finding a community of awesome thor fans so miles where can people find you online in the future uh well i'm going to be going back to jay and miles explain the x-men the x-men podcast that i've been doing with jay edited for a few years now i'm excited about that starting up again uh that's basically my only online presence i guess you can follow me on facebook if you feel like it uh, I don't know. Maybe eventually I'll start using Twitter or something like that. But yeah, Jane and Miles explain the X-Men. That's going to be awesome as well. Elizabeth, what about you? Well, I'm on Twitter as Elizabeth F. That's Elizabeth with an S with an F like Frank on the end. And then I have my own like weird personal blog. It's lizbert.wordpress.com. Yeah. And I got to say, like, you are a really good podcaster. And, <laughs> you know, your time is your own. I know you're a mom. You had a lot going on. But you should totally podcast more. You should tell the world about, I don't know, cooking or Murder, She Wrote or whatever. Maybe I can kind of combine it all into one. Murder, She Cooked. I like it. <gasps> Murder, She Cooked. You know, maybe, maybe you just might have something there, young man. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, yes, everybody, if you can come to our rap party that we mentioned, we would love to see you there. And Elizabeth? I don't know what the future looks like, but we have got to work together again. This has been so much fun doing this podcast with you. It's been so rad getting together every week to just like make these ridiculous outlines and talk about Thor. It's been great. Thank you. Agreed. I have loved it. This has been a wonderful experience. I will miss our dinners and our brunches together and our weird texts back and forth. Like, (laughs) hey, who's supposed to do this? Are you doing this? Am I doing that? (laughs) We'll find excuses. Yes. For now, we bid you a fond farewell. See you in Valhalla. The Lightning in the Storm has been produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. In Portland, Oregon, of Midgard, Realm of Mortals. It has been an honor and a privilege to take this journey through Walter Simonson and Sal Buscema's masterpiece. And an absolute pleasure to do so with you, our listeners. Thank you for riding beside us to witness the heights of heroism and the depths of villainy. This tale is told, but there are many others. Perhaps we'll see you again in one of them. Until then... Fight on, brave warriors! For valor! For glory! For For Asgard! Asgard!